there's no music if you have no body to play it with. So take care of your body first. You getting into the gym and you lifting weights and working on muscles is it's physical therapy for the benefit of your playing. The truth is nothing works like just taking care of the simple stuff. Diet, exercise and sleep. Take care of that and you'll be fine. Join us as two musicians and fitness coaches discuss strength, wellness and fitness in relation to musicians, artists and performance. Welcome back to the Tuned and Strong podcast. My name is Angela McKeeson, and I own Music Strong. And normally we are joined by Dr. Jen Cabas-May of Tuned and Toned Performance, but she is not feeling well today. So our thoughts and prayers and well wishes go out to her that she feels better quickly. But we are joined by Danielle again, who is going to join us for part two of a conversation we just had. Welcome, Danielle. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. Very happy to be here. Excellent. So um, we've got a couple things that we wanted to cover that we didn't get to really follow up on in our previous uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. So we had just, um, I don't know where you want to go with this first, but we had talked about the concept of deloading. We were talking about um, uh, as it relates to deloading, as it relates to musicians and weightlifting. And um, yeah, so you posted something about this the other day, I think. Yeah, I finally did a structured deload week with my lifting. Cause usually, you know, cause I like to lift on the side. I'm not a professional, just a d- disclaimer. Um, but I usually it was just always like, Oh, random week. I'm not feeling well. I try to lift heavy, but I'm not lifting heavy. And this one week I decided, you know what, I need to actually fit in a structured deload week where I go into the gym and I'm going to lift lighter than I usually do. And that was so rewarding. So, you know, just like think about it a different way, work on form. And I started thinking, why don't we do that as musicians in our practice and like periodize our practice schedules like that? I mean, mm-hmm. we do usually um, unintentionally just because, you know, you lead up to a performance, you usually scale back a little bit the week after just because that's what happens, not necessarily intentional. And I feel like there's a lot of guilt around that where I feel like we should be practicing four hours a day, no matter what, rather than thinking this is a planned week. I'm going to do a little bit less, let myself, you know, physically and mentally recover and then ramp back up, taper down, ramp back up. And it's just, it's really interesting kind of delving into the world of your fitness and athleticism on that side and seeing, Oh, this really does apply to how I work as a musician. And it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So if you think about how, um, so in the, in the fitness world, you have, well, you should have structured training plans usually. So you've got a goal. You don't just start out right close to that goal. You have to work up towards it. Right. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to lifting, generally we go from lower weights to higher weights. We go from lower reps or higher reps to lower reps and they, they do this kind of business. And then we end up at our goal. Right. But then what happens once you meet that goal? Well, you don't just continue to go and go and go and go and go because your body will break down. It has to have a recovery. So for anybody who doesn't know what deload, like a structured deload, that's what we're talking about, where you have this time of, hey, I met my goal. It's like recovery, right? You have mm-hmm. other things that you can work on. So like um, I'm or working just up- rest. Or just freaking rest. Yes. <laughs> or active recovery or massage or, you know, like those kinds of things. Um, and you're also talking about 
um, doing movements that are not at the top of, you know, at, at the top of the pyramid here, like lower weights, you're focusing on form. You're doing, mm-hmm. what were you doing specifically that, that had you thinking about this? How were you doing it? Um, I was just, I just scaled back on the weights and then realized, dang, I'm actually still sore after this. So that means my form was better. Yeah. It was nice to not, you know, be maxing out every time. And so I feel like I could really work on, you know, depth of my squat, things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's just how I fit that in. And it was kind of interesting too, in thinking about, you know, deloading as well as like, you know, tapers as you're leading up to a race. Cause I also bike and, you know, usually you're not going to be doing your max distance the day before a race or two days before a race, or even a week yep. before a race. You tapered off a couple of weeks before, but why do we think as musicians, we need to be practicing at our max the week leading up to a recital? And we do, we do. It's we funny do. you mentioned that. So I have this here because I just signed up for a, my first century ride in about three years. Yay. And I know. <laughs> I have a funny story. I just had a, a friend who he said, Hey, I noticed that you, you like this, this ride, this event on Facebook. I just signed up for it. You want to train together? I went. Oh, I've been eyeballing this ride for five years because it's in Maine. And I'm like, how am I going to do it? (laughs) But it's in Maine in September. And you get to go around the coast and look at the lighthouses of like, I got to do this. And he's like, hey, I signed up. You want to do it? And we talked and went, okay, that's a sign. I should do this. This is how I get back after my accident, right? Like, but you're exactly right. Like, you're when, when you're prepping for a long distance thing like that, you do not go out and ride 50, 60, 80 miles before a hundred mile ride on the same week. If you're running a marathon, if you don't, you don't, you have to back it off. So you're fresh. So you're rested. So you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember thinking about stuff like this back when I was in high school and I was trying to time, it started in high school and it goes till now. I still haven't quite mastered this. Um, I was thinking, how do I figure out, I was trying to figure out deload right? When it comes to my practicing right before an audition, do I practice the night before? Do I not practice right before? Because with, uh, at least with flute players, and we've got a good tone day versus a bad tone day. And you can mm. never tell when it's going to happen. And you want that audition to be your good tone day. And it always ends up being the day after the day before. And so I was like, do I, if I, maybe if I don't practice tonight, it'll be a good tone day and I'll feel better. And so I had I had, you know, days where auditions where I tried it and then I didn't, but I think it's because I didn't have, like, I just didn't ramp down. Right. Mm-hmm. The tone days are going to be tone days. They do what they do. Right. But no, I totally had the same thing. Cause I would yeah. you know, for leading up to a recital. I'd be like, I don't feel like practicing that much the day before besides like a run through. And I always felt bad about that. And like, now as I'm thinking through it more, I was like, that totally makes sense because that's really yeah. what I mentally needed. And when I let myself take those days, Mm-hmm. My performances were always stronger. So it wasn't like, oh, it would have been even better had I practiced, you know, a six hour day the day before recital. I knew I needed the break, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't really that language didn't make sense to me. At right. That point. Right. I mean, I know for in several instances when I had recitals that I would take the day off or I'd go to class a little bit, but I'd mostly just you're going to take the day off. Right. At that point, what does it matter? You know, it's like taking the day off and then I'd be bored and like, what do I do? You know, I'm not practicing. I'm not going, going to class. Well, you know, we got to be mentally prepared. That doesn't mean sitting around all day and doing nothing. 
but maybe I should have ramped down, like de-escalated the amount of hours I was practicing on the week right. towards it. Because, you know, you get the, you do get the law of diminishing returns and you can't cram. And at, at some point when you get to a, it's like the point of no return, right? If you haven't learned your music at a certain point and it's this close to your recital, you're not going to learn it. You don't have time. Right. <laughs> your body takes a while to process and, and assimilate that into your subconscious, into your, your self two or self one. I forget which one it is. You know, and it's kind of the same thing with athletics It's exactly the same thing with music. And I don't know why we don't do that. Maybe it's a culture thing because we think more is more. And if there's that meme that goes around, oh, if you're not practicing, someone else is. So what? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I said it. So what? Yeah. You know, who said you people have to say, oh, that. you'll notice if you miss a day of practice or what was that one that someone said, you know, you miss one day of practice, you know, two days. Oh, your audience knows know. three days. Everyone else knows. They know. That's a bunch of like, <laughs> And it doesn't mean you'll never touch your instrument, but what do we quantify as practice? Right. We don't talk about mental practice. We think that's a bunch of frou-frou-woo-woo. And we don't, it's, it's the, that's just, oh, you know, if you're hurt. Mm-hmm. No, there have been studies that show that there is just as much benefit from mental practice as physical practice. Right. Or score study. Like we don't mm-hmm. count that as practice time because you're not physically playing your instrument, but- Right. You know, right. 10 minutes of score study is sometimes more beneficial than an hour of practicing excerpts. Right. Or, you know, listening. I remember thinking that was recording extra yourself. and I didn't have time for that. Or what? Or Recording what? yourself. I hate Ooh. doing that, but like self-recording and listening back. So much. Nobody likes it. I don't no, know a single person who loves to hear themselves recorded. But it's so like the time that you spend is probably more beneficial sometimes than the hour you spend mm-hmm. practicing mm-hmm. or in quotes, practicing in quotes. Practicing. I know. Right. It's, it's funny. And I don't know why we don't do that, but I think it's an excellent thing for anybody who's listening to think about if you're teaching or if you are, if you're teaching somebody, or if you are a performer, take a look at your practice schedule. Why, if you, if you practice it out or the next time you're preparing for something, do you really ramp up your practicing and just kind of cram in as much as possible at the last minute? Or how do you de-escalate? I mean, I'm thinking about the, um, I'm wondering if this has something to do maybe with, uh, with the orchestral side of things. I mean, I play in a, in a symphony, but it's a part-time symphony. It's not a, you know, full-time deal. So for anybody who does these freelance things in the, the, the part-time orchestras, you basically, you do a bunch of rehearsals right before the concert. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same thing, right? So it means you never get time. You get the next day. I mean, it's there's that. But then you think about, okay, think about these bands that go out on the road. When are they rehearsing? They're not rehearsing. When they're on the road, it's go time. It's like it's that's, that can go. Yeah, that could be eight months of basically a recital. That's eight months of it or six months or whatever. I mean, it's it's go time. It's that time has passed. So how do you, did, but did they ramp up their practice time before they go out on the road? Or do they also kind of back off before touring? It's kind it's of really a- interesting. Yeah. We don't talk about that as much in the you know classical side of things. And I always say this with air quotes because. Yeah, we should, we definitely should. I mean, I think, I think it's something to be addressed because if you're, if you're practicing all the time at some point, you're just, you're not, you're not going to get the, uh, the, the, uh, the results that you want, you know, you're not, 
You just can only assimilate so much in a short time. That's why you don't cram. It doesn't work. Right. Right. Yeah. So we were talking about that, but we were also talking about uh, audience building, I think. So, yeah. And this ties really well into your event that you're going to be doing soon. But we were talking about, which we're going to get to in just a second. We were talking about, um, I I mentioned Looney Tunes. So I alluded to this because over the break, we were talking about, well, how did you get into, um, into classical music? And there's this meme that floats around. I'm going to try to see if I can put it in the show notes. It's goofy. It's like, how did you get into classical music? And it's them. And then me, an intellectual. It's a picture of Bugs Bunny and drag on that giant fat horse. You know, it, we've all seen it, right? And it's like, it's true. There's so many of us who grew up with Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. We learned Rossini and Wagner and, you know, um, you know, and that whole business. Kids don't see that now. So we are struggling and we hear that, that orchestras especially are struggling with how to reach a younger audience. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about the audience that's there now in the fifties, that came out, you know, we were watching reruns. I was watching reruns, but that came out in real time forever ago. You know, musicals were a thing. Those aren't really seen the same way. So, I mean, it's, it's, it poses a broader question. I don't think it's just like bring cartoons back. Bring bring Bugs Bunny on the horseback, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's an well, interesting it's because question. They had elements of the music that they were creating in pop culture. So, like even today, the orchestra concerts that are sold out are the ones that have the pop music or the film scores or oh, yeah. things like that. And those are the ones that everyone loves because there's something that they can connect to and relate mm-hmm. to. Um, yeah. So it's not necessarily that we need to bring you know, Mozart back into pop culture, it's that maybe we need to fit pop culture a little bit more into the concert stage just to create music that, you know, relates to people that right. they can relate to, connect to. So that's, I'm I'm a new music person into contemporary music. I don't do a lot of standard classical rep at this point, just because I would much rather play something that is new, um, that you can't go find a hundred recordings of, but mm-hmm. it has to be something that an audience can relate to in some way, because a lot of the contemporary music is very academic, which is fine. I dig it, but my random audience, if I go play at a coffee shop or something, they're not going to get it. It has to be something that, you know, has some creative elements, but something that they can connect to as well. So I think like, you know, on a small scale, you know, for me, that could be collaborating with a coffee shop to, you know, have a composer write a song about their signature drink or something that's very tangible. But for like, you know, orchestra concerts, there has to be something in there that the audience can relate to rather than thinking, oh, we go listen to Mozart because that's what we do. Yes, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with the composers of yours, so to speak. Right, there's nothing wrong with Mozart. Not (laughs) at all. But I tell you what, you know, when it comes to looking at um, seasons and what concerts I want to look at, if it's all Beethoven, if it's all Haydn, if it's, I get bored, I don't want to go. I mean, I've heard it a million times, unless I really like the piece. It's like, eh. but if yeah. I see something I've never heard, like there was um, the symphony up here played uh, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. And I went, "Ooh, I've never heard that. Well, I want to go see that. Or, Britain's, you know, these. I love Britten's music. Right, oh, I do. like I, And Vaughn Williams. I like both mm-hmm. of them. And I know oh, they're, yeah. they're super romantic. But so what? I mean, I connect to that a whole lot more than I do some other things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us connecting those, um, those elements, especially in today where we have so much media 
And it, I don't know why in the classical, in the symphony world, at least, it's seen as a novelty and a, and sometimes even as like a sellout way to get people to join. Or to, no, I think to, they do see that as a sellout way. Like we're going to get, you know, sell the tickets to this um, Star Wars with live music. So then we can pay for our, you know, Mahler symphony. Yes. <laughs> but it's the cool. audiences love it. Yeah. So create something that the audience will love. Yeah. That if you, you just, know, can also bring some of your creativity. It doesn't have to be either or. Right, right. I mean, there's definitely there's a ton a of composers out there that would love to write music for these orchestras and I get know. it performed and be able to collaborate in that way. Like, yeah, there's absolutely. options. There's so many options out there. Mm, what are some of your favorites that you have that you have noticed? Because I know this is getting into what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, favorites as of composers, of music? Like certain ways concerts. that you were just saying there was just so many options. So, I mean, I was thinking kind of the same thing. You know, there's there's just so many options for uh, for symphonies to be able to, symphonies, orchestras, to be able to connect with their audience just a little better. And it's not a sellout. You have right. to play things people want to hear. If no one wants to hear Mahler, they're not going to come. You can't force them to like Mahler. Right. What? Well, Everybody likes so Star Wars. much good music still being written. It's not necessarily for the concert stage. It's maybe right. for films or TV shows. And or video games. Video games. That's a huge one. And it's not mm. necessarily it's not bad music. Like there's skilled, extremely skilled, dedicated composers writing this music. Yeah. And it's good music and people enjoy it and they can come to the concert and they're like, I recognize that. That's so cool. And that's why they're coming is because it's something that they can relate to, but experience mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, so it's something I'm totally still exploring. And I guess with COVID, we are still redefining a lot of what we do with larger symphony concerts as well so it's not like there's i've gone gone to a lot in the last year or so but yeah i'm thinking it like you know how do i do it what concerts get me excited about going there and usually right. right now it's chamber concerts because it's a drive to get to detroit for the detroit symphony and i'm mm -hmm. probably not going to drive there for a beethoven symphony right necessarily but if they're premiering um a new symphony from a colleague that I know, I would totally go. So for me, it would be the people behind the music. If it's someone that I, I guess, have a relationship with or I relate to or feel like, you know, with someone that isn't just a, an out of reach composer. If it's like someone like, oh, this is a Detroit composer. I want to go support a local composer who's getting their music performed. That's what would get me to concert hall yeah yeah um we have something here in nashville i think it's called oz arts i haven't um and we have them and we also have a group called chatterbird i'm just starting to learn what they are but they're they're seen as new music as well mm -hmm. and what's funny is it's literally new music it's being created it's being written a lot of it is through a some of it are nashville composers which is great but i think it's so funny that in the the quote classical world we call new music anything that's written after 1900. My gosh, we're <laughs> when does it get out of it? When does that become old? I think like Firebird is old at this point. It's not new music, you know. It's <laughs> you know. It seems so, like it's tonal versus atonal. If it's tonal, it's old. If it's not tonal, it's new. New ish. Yeah, but you know, I think about it. <laughs> This way, I feel like that whole atonal thing. Now, I can be wrong, and 
feel free to argue with me, but I feel like some of that atonal stuff was really just a phase, you know, like the performance art of the sixties and the mm-hmm. atonal stuff, the Barrio Sequenza stuff, you know, that, I mean, it was just, it was a lot of experimentation, but then we got into minimalism. And so it, like, it's just a, a part of things that really kind of evolved in a stuff because I don't know a lot of people that just want to go hear noise, you know, what right. some people would call noise, just random sounds. And, oh, that's mm-hmm. music. Or <laughs> John Cage's piece where you sit at the piano and you don't play anything for four minutes and what is it? 32 33 seconds? Thirty-three seconds. Four thirty-three 33 seconds. No, it? I love that. I mean, we always joke about it, but it's, it was an exploration because that one's fun. That was his way of exploring the sound that's not intentional. Mm-hmm. So, and then people build off of that. So, yeah, it was definitely the atonal phase. It was a phase, but it was a way of exploring a different way of creating music. And then people are building and adapting. Mm-hmm. So, there's not a lot of serial music being written now, but there's a lot of music that is it's not strictly tonal, but it still uses a lot of familiar tonal elements mm-hmm. but it's like different relationships between notes like prioritizing thirds over fifths or fourths over fifths and things like that and that's what i think is so cool about new music is it's you're refining ideas and you're exploring stuff and you're just trying things out and you can see those progressions how you know the minimalist composers have you know influenced a lot of things today so maybe the pared down minimalism like um what was it? Terry Riley's something in C, oh. which is just oh. you know, very bared down minimalism. Yeah. But that concept has definitely infiltrated a lot of the music being written today. And it's just it's cool to see that. It is. It is. It's not that it wasn't wasn't valuable. Absolutely. It was absolutely valuable. Mm-hmm. Even if we do look back and be like, okay, that was it was experimental. It was yeah. but it was a exploration. Mm-hmm. Which brings us into where we are today because we didn't have video games, but then, you know, it's kind of like getting into video game music, getting into film music and film, like they all had their progressions, but that all helped get us into a different style as well. So. Right. Or like opera leading into film scoring and. Right. Like we don't use the same strict leitmotifs um, that Wagner did, yes. but there's definitely that element in film scoring. Like absolutely. But it's just not quite as overt but yeah. they drew from that, but it's True. an experiment. It's just, it's cool. It is. And, and that leads us into your event, which is the toolbox sessions. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on with that? And yeah. And if you caught the last episode, um, we had tied into that by talking about injuries and how learning how to write well for instruments protects the musicians who are playing your music. Um, but it's also an opportunity for composers to be able to collaborate and do this type of exploration with the musicians who are performing their music. So Toolbox Sessions um, is a dream that I've had for a while, but it's a f- virtual conference that will bring together composers, orchestrators with experienced collaborative musicians to really delve into the details of writing well for these instruments, because our goal is to help composers get their music played. We don't want you to be writing music that never gets played. We want to help you do that. But in order to do that, um, it helps to have that really hands-on experience of writing for instruments and learning kind of beyond the textbook. Mm-hmm. So we're bringing a bunch of people in. We have 12 presenters who will all be doing presentations on their instruments, um, vocalists, a guitarist, um, violinist, clarinet, bassoon, harp. 
um, and just really delving into that. And we'll have some panel discussions as well. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about it. The tickets are on sale now. Um, if you go to toolboxsessions.com, um, we'll have all the information on there, the schedule and all that. But it is this year, which when this episode releases, it'll be coming up really soon. Um, mm -hmm. May 19th through 21st, it will be recorded. So if you get the VIP access, um, you'll be able to listen to everything afterward, whether replay it or catch it later if you can't join everything live. But I'm I'm super excited that this is actually happening. Oh, absolutely. So how did you, if just remind us here, like, how did you get started with making this, uh, I mean, where did this dream start? It started a long time ago when I was in school and working with composers as an undergrad and just realizing how, like, there's so much that you have to know as a composer about all the in other instruments. Like as performers, we become specialists in our own instrument. Like mm -hmm. I know the harp. I don't know very much about the other instruments I don't play. Like I play piano, so I know a little bit of that, sure. a little bit of viola, but composers have to really know everything. And that's, it's a lot. And instrumentation classes, when you have your classes that, you know, go through all the individual instruments, there's just not the time to really delve into all the details of everything. So mm -hmm. I wanted to create this as a way just to support composers. Yeah. Um, with really, you know, knowing those details. Yeah, I think we've all been in situations where we have played, <laughs> we've gotten music on the stand and we look and go, I can't do that. Yeah, this was <laughs> written for my instrument. This was written for the piano, not the harp. Oh, especially, yeah, especially you guys. I love or it. Or my we... oboist, when we play with our ensemble, sometimes she gets scores and she's like, this looks like this was written for the flute, not the oboe. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or where they. But I they, mean, how can you know they, if you don't play that instrument, you don't. Right. Unless you memorize a textbook, in which case you still, you still. need the practical, your know, demonstrations, it, hearing it, seeing it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's kind of funny that you that you bring this up. It ties really well, honestly, into what I've been doing is that when COVID hit, I had all this time on my hand and I thought, oh, I need to interview as many musicians as possible because I don't play all their instruments. So you know, mm -hmm. I'm not writing for them, but I also don't know as much about every instrument and how you hold it. It's not necessarily ergonomics, but what are the challenges you face in your body as an instrumentalist? Right. And I feel like strength coaches, personal trainers, exercise programs don't take musicians into account very much. Not and they don't think all. about it. No, they don't think about That's how That's why I haven't really worked with a strength coach, also the budget, but no. there's like, they don't know, like my right side of my body is way stronger than my left. Mm-hmm because of heart, but also because of carrying a toddler. So that, well, there's that <laughs> I go to the gym. I'm like, damn, my left arm is so weak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been doing a whole bunch of sessions lately with, uh, through music cares with, um, guitarists and bass players and all kinds of things. And just some of the stuff that you see is repetitive and some of it's not, but there's a mm -hmm. lot of things. It's like, my gosh, I would love for all the strength trainers in the world who, um, to be able to know this kind of information, because I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a musician who said, yeah, I went to a personal trainer once and they hurt me. Yeah. I hate that. It's just because they don't know, you know, and it's like these composers, they want to write. So personal trainers want to write the best program for you. They can, but if they don't, if they're just ignorant, they, they mm -hmm. have limits. And same with these composers, they want to write the best piece of music they can, but if they don't know the demands of the instrument or the limitations or right. even what it can do, Right. So like, but you also have to have things? musicians that understand that well enough to explain it. And mm -hmm. 
um, for both sides. Um, not all musicians, I guess, have the patience or the interest or just the experience to be able to explain well how to write for their instrument. And probably mm -hmm. the same thing if someone isn't doesn't know much about you know lifting or exercise, they wouldn't be able to explain to a personal trainer. This is what I do with my arm. This is I'm using this muscle a lot more than my other side, things like that. And, and that's information that you need to be able to convey. So having someone who is a specialist or someone like you who can actually, you know, understand that and be able to, you know, not only train people yourself, but maybe be a resource for other strength coaches out there. Exactly. There's so many of them out there. There are so many and we all mean well, but you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. You know, they're just so it so makes far. sense for them to, you know, specialize. Well, yeah. You know, with, you know, their target audience and who they're working with. And the exactly. successful ones are the ones who do, is what I've noticed. Because I follow them all on Instagram. That's how I learn everything. Of course. Of course. <laughs> it's, Instagram has become the best resource, I feel like. It's, everybody goes to Insta more than Facebook to find out who is this person. And then we look right. them up on Google and like, well, let me look at their Insta first. <laughs> it's just such a handy little, you know, portfolio mm -hmm. to really see how they talk, what they do, what's important to them. And it's, it's a great format. It is. So um, before we wrap up here, can you tell me a little bit about your presenters and some of your presenters, what they're presenting, a little bit more about Toolwatch Sessions, because I think this is a great time for you to really promote this platform. I'm really excited that you're doing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously I will be presenting on harp, um, which I'm super excited about. I teach a lot of harp writing. I have a course on that that's like a five-week course. So obviously my one-hour presentation at Toolbox will not be completely comprehensive, everything you need to know, but... Um, my goal is to give you a place to start and that you know what questions to be asking, because hopefully you as a composer will have the opportunity to work with a harpist in person. But in order to take advantage of that time, you have to know what questions to ask and you know come from a good starting place. So that's my goal. And that's the goal of all the presenters um, who will be there. So my ensemble is all going to be there. Um, the Blank Experiment, we have a very very unique instrumentation of harp, clarinet, saxophone, oboe, bassoon. Um, so we'll be covering all of those instruments and having a panel discussion on, you know, kind of work uh, what it's like being a new music ensemble and working with composers. Um, we have Dr. Lisa Neer, who's an incredible vocalist and does a lot of work with talking about text studying for writing because the text that you put to music, there's so many considerations with that. And I'm not a vocalist, so I don't understand that, but she does so much work on that. Um, we have, who else? We have a lot of people. You have a lot of people. I was looking up them, uh, looking them up on Instagram today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, it have, looks like you have like, uh, at least a dozen, if not more. Yeah. We have 12 people. Perfect. So we're covering a lot. We have, um, Brian Kaichin on trumpet, um, Marianne Parker for piano. It's a really cool collaborative, um, pianist in Chicago. So very we're, awesome. we're covering a lot. We're not covering all the instruments, but hopefully over the course of the next few years, we will, but we're covering a lot and a good variety. I love it. I love it. So this is going to be a forum where they're going to be presenting, but um, that the, there's going to be presenting to composers or to anybody who wants to be joining in on this, correct? Um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's targeted to composers, orchestrators, arrangers. So if like you're in the business of writing music for instruments, whether it's original orchestrating or making arrangements, Mm -hmm. um, definitely would be useful. But if you're just a you know collaborative musician that wants to learn more, you're 
absolutely welcome. And probably you know, we'll be having, you know, some networking events as well. So you can actually meet the people nice. there, you know, build your community. Love it. So I'm and it's not all going to be about extended techniques. Actually, yeah. we're not going to be talking about that a lot because what you really need to know are the basics or not the basics, but the standard techniques to be able to build on the extended techniques. So if you're not into, you know, contemporary crazy music, um, that's fine. You're welcome because that's not what this is for. <laughs> and if you are, please come because you do need to learn the way that an instrument works before you build on, build on it and branch yeah. out from there. And I'd say this is probably really great for uh, music students who are in college in music mm -hmm. or music degrees who are maybe taking um, an instrumental class or a, or I think we had an instrumental techniques class, which is where we learned, like, um, we learned arranging, we learned, um, how to compose, we didn't compose, but we basically arranging. And then we learned mm -hmm. all about the different instruments, but it was very basic. So this would have been something I would have loved to have had. Yeah. <laughs> or even, you have know, a band teacher, cause you likely are teaching a lot of different students if yes. you're a band director and, you know, possibly making arrangements to fit different skill levels. And this is the kind of thing. Huge, huge for band directors. My gosh. Yeah. They're magicians. They do so much. <laughs> they are. God bless them. I mean, we, none of us would be where we were if we, if we hadn't started with them. So I'm going to be putting all of your uh, information and stuff about the toolbox sessions in the show notes. So you guys can make sure to sign up for that ASAP and get in on that VIP as well. So uh, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? So we're really glad you got to come in and we got to finish this conversation because I yeah. think getting cut off. Right? <laughs> we got going with it. Yeah, no, I think that covers everything. It's just, I love what you're doing um, just because strength has been such a huge part of my life um, over the past few years. And I think it's made me a better musician, definitely made me a better person, just having a different mental outlet. So yeah, I love the work that you're doing here. Well, thank you so much. And I know Jen would be just as appreciative if she were here. <laughs> so thank you for reaching out and you guys go check out the toolbox sessions. We'll put the link down here in the show notes. Danielle, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. Y'all go and subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Until next time. Hey, musicians. Did you know that up to 90% of musicians will experience playing related pain or injury over the course of their career? How many hushed conversations have you heard about a lingering, quote, shoulder pain or a weird tingling in your fingers or maybe low back pain or a crampy weakness or maybe you or your colleague just says, I just have to get through the gig and you watch them pop Advil like candy, maybe flush it down with whiskey. How many times have we seen something like this? So many, right? Well, it's time we start talking about our struggles, our pain, our frustrations in a private space where we don't just complain and mobilize and blindly stretch, but we learn how to strengthen our muscles, our career successes, and build each other up. I've got a brand new program that combines all of these things, and I want you to be a part of it. It's a community, not a workout. It's a community with group coaching and great content that in 12 weeks, we'll have you understanding more about your body, what you need, and how you work so you can avoid that career-threatening injury. The three things that musicians don't want. We don't want to be injured. We don't want to have a lack of stamina. And we don't want to be clueless, aka when you hurt, who do you go see? Just a quote doctor? Well, this program addresses all of those things. You're going to walk away with an immense knowledge of 
who to see. You're going to be empowered because you're going to know what to do should you ever get injured or should you have a colleague that gets injured. You will be able to actually offer appropriate advice. You're also going to learn about the body and the anatomy as it relates to playing your instrument and your own anatomy. And then you're going to learn how to build not just your strength and endurance, but you're going to learn how to design your own corrective exercise program. So I hope you will join me in this new program. It's called the Music Strong Pilot Program, Job Security for Musicians.